Good morning. We're going to read Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show righteous, his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this ministry. Thank you for this church. Just thank you for everything and your word and your forgiveness. Lord, I just ask that you would bless uh, Pastor Mike today as he teaches us and just brings us closer to you, that we can be well equipped to be amazing witnesses for Christ out in the world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Good morning, everybody. It's accurate to say that I received from preacher friends a lot of sympathy this week as word got out that I was going to be preaching the entire book of Romans in one sermon. <laughs> this is widely considered, universally considered, the book that is the masterpiece of theology and doctrine uh, in the entire New Testament. Stands alone, actually, in that category. Uh, when people dig into it, they tend to do deep dives. Uh, probably the most famous is a British preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones, who took 12 years to do what we will do in 35 minutes. <laughs> so there is a bit of a challenge today. Not unique, if you've been with us since January, you know pretty much every sermon has been in that same category of trying to do justice to the books in such a short overview. And the question is, can we do justice to the book of Romans this morning in one message? And the answer is no. I'm giving up on the idea of doing justice to the entire book. In fact, I'm going to take a two-pronged approach to Romans, and I'll talk about the second prong a little bit later in the message. But for now, we're just going to, we're going to do what we can and take a look at this whole book. We're going to start right now by looking at where it fits in the flow of the New Testament. If you were with us last week, you heard John preach about a combination of Luke and the book of Acts. Also, not an easy <laughs> sermon in one message covering two books of the New Testament. Uh, in that book, we get introduced along the way to a man named Saul initially in chapter 9 of the book of Acts. He later becomes known as Paul, and he becomes the focus of the last 16 chapters of the book of Acts, which, as you might know, describes the growth and the beginning, from the beginning in Jerusalem to the growth of the Christian movement until eventually, well now it's a worldwide global movement, by the time of the end of the book of Acts, it was all over the Roman Empire. And the book of Acts traces that. It's the one history book of the New Testament. We learn about this guy, Paul, uh, who was uh, born and raised a Jew in Gentile territory. He was part of what's called the Diaspora, the Jews who'd been scattered. Uh, so he, he was Israelite, he knew the Old Testament, he, he loved God's word. In fact, he became a Pharisee, who we see in the book of Acts was dramatically converted to faith in Christ on the road to Damascus as he was heading out to persecute Christians. He became a member of the church in Antioch, and we have a little slide there. Uh, I love maps. I need to tell you this in advance. I'm a big map guy, and here's, here's my one map for this week. 
the church at Antioch, you see on the right there, sort of became the headquarters of, of the Christian movement. It shifted from Jerusalem north to Antioch. And Antioch becomes sort of the mover and shaker church of the, of the end of the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas were there, kind of leading in that church. Uh, Antioch was the first intentionally mixed congregation of Christ followers. By that I mean there were Jewish believers in the Messiah, Jesus, worshiping alongside Gentile believers in the Messiah of Israel. Uh, the book of Acts shows that was a tense point. It wasn't easy for these two groups to mix and mingle, and especially to feel unified in any way. Entire books we're going to study later on of the New Testament are written to address that issue. In Antioch, they figured it out. They figured out a way for these historical enemies to come together under the banner of faith in Jesus Christ and be one spiritual family. So we'll be looking at, at the letters that Paul, and Bar, that Paul wrote to the letters he and Barnabas planted. Uh, these letters, you see he, they were in Galatia, they went to Ephesus, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Corinth. That's a sample of the places where they went and preached the gospel and brought people to Christ and formed them into small churches. Over time, those churches needed more help and more instruction, and so he wrote them letters, and those letters became preserved for us in the New Testament as the epistle to the Galatians, the Ephesians, Philippians, Thessalonians, and the Corinthians. We'll be looking at each of those letters in addition to ones Paul wrote to individuals because they, he also had people working alongside him, Timothy and Titus, and some of the letters we'll read are addressed and named after their recipients. And I want to stop for a minute to realize what this re reflects about Paul. He traveled a lot. He did a lot of stuff, and, and, and he's a powerful man in the history of the Christian church, but he had a tender heart toward the people that he'd served and the folks he had brought to Christ. And as he left them behind, sometimes planned, other times needing to flee persecution, as he left these believers behind in Galatia and, and Ephesus, he still had a heart for them. Sometimes he left teammates behind to, to care for them and help them grow. He wrote these letters when he heard they had issues and had needs. He had a really, really tender heart. He had a shepherd's heart as a church planter. Uh, when I was in seminary, they talked about, I remember a professor saying, everybody's either a Barnabas guy or a Paul guy. That's because if you know those two characters, they're together in the book of Acts, and they're significant people in the history of the church. Barnabas is the, the, the softer of the two. His very name means son of encouragement. He quickly became my favorite New Testament character. Uh, he has soft edges. He was warm and welcoming, even welcomed Paul when nobody trusted him. Barnabas is a great guy. He's my guy, all right? And, and when you read some of Paul's letters, He's got some harsh edges, <laughs> okay? He says some things that are hard to hear, and he spanks people verbally sometimes. I used to say, I would want Paul to be my professor, but I'd invite Barnabas to my party. But over time, I want to confess, my view of Paul has softened a little bit. One reason is, I planted some churches myself and learned what it's like to leave them behind and to still be yearning to help them and to be with them. The letters he wrote and the, re the, the second and third visits he made reflected that. So now I'm a little easier on Paul than I would have been maybe 10 years ago. But I want to take a minute to pause here and recognize we have something in common with the names of those churches on that map. Because we are a church plant also, existing three years now, I think it is. Three years, our pastors have toiled and worked in some of the harshest conditions to try to start a church in the pandemic. Are you kidding me? Uh, people must have laughed when they heard that's what you guys were doing. 
and, and I want us to be sure as we respond to the ministries of John and Anthony and their families that we recognize that shepherd's heart in them and that we do what we can as a church, as a congregation, to be sources of joy for them and not sources of pain because both can happen, believe me. So let's be glad that we have the church planters with the same kinds of heart that Paul and Barnabas had. And I want to affirm you guys right here. You guys are, I love you being my pastors. <laughs> so thank you for being that for us and your families as well, right there with you. Okay, tangent over. Let's, let's come back and take a look at that map again and notice the city we're talking about today is not on the map. You can see the boot of Italy there, but that's all you see. That's because when Paul wrote this letter we're about to study, he hadn't been to Rome yet. It was a place he'd never visited. He heard about it. He knew the church existed, obviously. He knew people in it. We'll see that in just a minute. But he'd never been there. No doubt the Roman church was started by people who'd come to faith in Christ elsewhere. And because all roads led to Rome, they wound up in Rome, found other Christians, got together, and, and became a congregation. We think Paul wrote this book from Corinth during his third missionary journey. And this letter tells us how eager he was to visit them. In fact, he, he tells them, I can't wait to be with you. I can't wait to come to see you. His plan was he would visit them on the way to Spain, where he also wanted to go and preach the gospel. He would eventually visit Rome, but not in the way he thought. He would visit Rome uh, as a prisoner in chains. In fact, he would eventually die in a prison in Rome for his faith. So, now that we know a bit of the background of the letter, let's dive into it right now. Because I, I succumbed to peer pressure, I've got an alliteration <laughs> for, for the book of Romans. <laughs> it took a while. I needed help with this one. I got a friend who helped me out. The alliteration for this, but we're doing this for every book, if you're new here. Uh, Romans is three G's, gospel, guidelines, and greetings. Is that pretty good? You like that one? Okay, okay thank you. <laughs> it goes against my conscience to do that, but I, I, I did so. Let's go backwards through those three. Start with the greetings. You'll see, if, if you know these, these letters of Paul, or, or if you get exposed to them in the next few weeks, he pretty much always ends a letter with greetings to the people he's writing to from the people he's serving with. Uh, he has a team with him, and he sends greetings on behalf of Silas and Timothy. And, but sometimes he greets individuals by name in these churches. It's not too surprising when he writes to places where he's already been, because he knows those people. What's amazing is the book of Romans is the longest list of greetings of any of his letters, and he's never been there. But he knows people. He knows what's going on. He's heard stories, and he wants to make sure they know that he knows them well. So it ends with greetings. Right before the greeting section is three chapters of guidelines. Chapters 12 through 15 give instruction for how to live the Christian life. How should we interact? How should we relate? What kind of people should we be day to day? We're going to touch on that a little bit today. But we're going to focus most of our time on what makes Romans really unique today. We're going to focus on the first half of the book, which is all about the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ, as, as that, as what that word means. And before we start talking about it, I want to underline that this book should come with a warning label on it. Because we are handling spiritual dynamite. This book has been one of, if not the most significant parts of the New Testament throughout church history. The book we're about to study has changed the world more than once. Not just the Christian world, quote-unquote, but the entire world more than once. God has used it to blow stuff up. Uh, Bible scholar F.F. F. Bruce describes it this way. Time and again, in the course of Christian history, it has liberated the minds of men, 
brought them back to an understanding of the essential gospel of Christ and started spiritual revolutions. Spiritual revolutions. Strong words. But it's not exaggerated. Uh, some of the biggest names of the history of Christianity were impacted powerfully by the book we're about to study. Fourth century, uh, uh, theologian Augustine. 16th century, Martin Luther. 18th century, John Wesley. All, in their own stories about their own lives of faith, point back to this book that we're about to read as having been the watershed moment, having been the turning point in their own spiritual lives. And it's worth asking, what makes this book so powerful and, and, and so unique? Even compared, The whole New Testament is inspired, and, and we love it, and it's true. But there's something about this book that stands alone. There's one man I, I found this week who said this about it, Jared Wilson, says this about the book. You'll find gospel truth in every book of the Bible, including the Old Testament. We've seen that. And you certainly find the explicit gospel of Jesus Christ in every book of the New Testament. But the book of Romans, rivaled only by, perhaps by Hebrews, completely brings the Old Covenant history into the New Covenant revelation. Romans has an epic sweep and a panoramic scope. You don't just get the gospel in Romans, you get gospel deeps. If I ever start a Christian rock band, I'm going to call it Gospel Deeps. <laughs> I would like that. That would be cool. You'll see as we go forward today, this book connects the dots between what we've been doing for seven months and what we're going to be doing now and for the next few months. It, it brings the pieces together in a way that's really unique, and it's the clearest, most compelling explanation of the good news of Jesus in the entire New Testament. When we focus on the Gospel... God does amazing things. And that's why Romans has been the tool that it is in the history of Christianity. The bottom line is, friends, there's no better story on the planet than the one we're about to spend time in. And I have to wonder, what might God do today as we focus on the gospel in Romans? What might he blow up? What picture of him might be radically changed in your heart, in your mind, what understanding of who you are and who Jesus is might change today because of what we do in the next half hour or so. He'll have that chance today. He'll have another chance starting in November. Because one reason I don't feel too bad skipping over sections today is we just got a green light this last couple of weeks to start a more in-depth study in Romans starting in November. I've had a chance twice to go through Romans verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we're going to offer that here at Union again starting in November. We have to wait a while. I've got some travel coming up in the next couple of months. But starting in November, going through to next spring with some breaks for more travel and some holidays, we are going to take a chapter a night and spend time just going wherever the scripture takes us. If that chapter talks about one topic, we'll talk about one topic. If that chapter branches into eight or ten things, we'll talk about eight or ten things. Okay? We'll go wherever the verses take us. It'll be on Wednesday nights here somewhere at the Adult Center. There'll be registration opportunities coming up. So when you see, we need to know in advance because we're going to print handouts. And so be ready for that if you're interested. Uh, it's been a, a good study the two times I've done it, and I personally can't wait to do it again. So why don't we pray as we get ready to dig into today's version of our study of Romans. Lord, thank you for the power of this book. Not the power of the book, the power of your story, the power of your truth. Would you blow things up today, Lord Jesus, as we come face to face with how amazing your plan is? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's start with where Romans starts. We learn a lot about God in this book, and the first thing we learn is God is angry. 
He's angry because his world, for which he had such high hopes, is messed up. And the people it have messed it up. Listen to Romans 1. I'll start at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Paul starts off saying how mad God is. Let's acknowledge that's kind of countercultural for us. The first I heard the gospel, I read it in a booklet that begins, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. We don't like to start with this side of God. Well, we know it's true, but it's not fun to start there because it gets a little daunting. And if you can, it can even get a little bit scary. But this is where Paul starts as he talks about the gospel. And he goes on to mention the idolatry that gets God so angry. He points out that the human race had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And he says, that worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. As a result of that anger, three times at the end of chapter 1, it says God gave them up. Those are hard words. God gave them up. Who wants to be given up? By God. You're thinking, well, when does the good news start? Because <laughs> this is pretty hard to hear. And Paul seems to anticipate, as he describes this idolatry, which was pretty common in the, in the pagan world, in the Gentile world, he seems to anticipate that his Jewish readers are going, yeah, yeah, Paul, go get them, sick them. Those, those non-Israelites, they're all messed up with their arms folded, pointing the finger. And in chapter 2, he, he points out, oh, the mess includes Israel, folks. They don't get a pass. He seems to anticipate the smug finger-pointing of his countrymen and says things like, do you suppose you who judge that you'll escape the judgment of God? Now, we come to this book after spending seven months in the Old Testament, so we're not surprised to hear that Israel doesn't get a pass because their history is filled with the same kinds of issues that they are judging their, their Gentile neighbors for. In chapter 3, he gives the bottom line that we read earlier, uh, just before the sermon started, that bottom line, we all deserve God's wrath. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. I'll just read through verse 12 this time. What then? Oh, sorry, it's not the passage we read yet. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Again, hard words to hear. Sobering words. Words that you talk about and the room gets a little quiet. Because we don't want to hear things like that. And yet, don't we somewhere, don't we want God to be angry? I do. Because I get angry. When I look at the world around me and, and what a mess we have made of it, I get angry. Why wouldn't a God who is holy and perfect, far, far from my sense of perfection, why wouldn't we want God to be angry at what makes us angry? Did you see the video last week of a, a guy walking up behind a total stranger on a street in, I think it was in Florida somewhere. A guy walks up, no conversation, no provocation. A guy walks up and just sucker punches this guy from behind. Knocks him down on the ground. Turns out he hit his head on the pavement, fractured his skull. He's in the hospital. He's in a coma. And the guy who did that gets released the next morning from police custody. I was furious. 
what country do I live in? Where the guy who threw the punch is walking around while the guy he punched is in a coma. Don't I want God to be angry about that? Don't we want the bad guys to get what's coming to them? That's the bottom line. Every drama, every TV show we watch is based on that idea. My wife is a, is a cop show, I was going to use the word addict, but she just gave me a dirty look. <laughs> She's a, a cop show appreciator, okay? <laughs> our, our TiVo is full of all kinds of cop shows, and, and that's the plot, right? Bad guy does something bad, good guys come along, it's a little dicey, who's, is it gonna, they finally catch him, and he's going to get what he deserves. That's satisfying to us. We want the bad guys to get what they deserve. The trouble is, in this context, you have to define who the bad guys are. We typically want to say the bad guys are always over there. Bad guys are everybody who's not quite as good as I am. And they all deserve what they have coming. And in a righteous world, in a world where truth matters, that's going to happen sooner or later. But what if God's definition of bad guy is different? What if God's definition of who's good and who's bad, who deserves judgment and who doesn't, what if God's definition says everybody who's not like Jesus of Nazareth deserves judgment? And not just in the obvious stuff, not just in the stuff we can see, not, not just in, in the, okay, you see like, like a guy throwing a punch. What if God's idea includes not just actions, but includes our words? That if we say things, we're guilty of that thing. What if he goes so far as to say even our thoughts put us in that bad guy category? Jesus says if you hate someone, it's like you've murdered them. You mean we're accountable for our thoughts? Yeah, we are. So we've got to be a little more careful when we say we want the bad guys to get what's coming to them. Because the bottom line is, unless you've ever been mistaken for Jesus, you've got a problem. If nobody's ever said to you, oh, oh, hi, John, sorry for a minute there, I thought you were Jesus. <laughs> if that's never been your experience, then you and I qualify as being under the category of people who deserve the wrath of God in a just world. And guilty people should be careful to cry out for justice. If justice happens, guilty people get punished. Guilty people who know they're guilty don't cry for justice, they plead for mercy. And we'll get to that in just a couple of minutes. The bottom line is, we human beings have a problem that we can do nothing about. And Romans spends two and a half chapters on this idea because it's so crucial to understand that. It's like going to the doctor's office and the first thing a doctor has to do is diagnose what's wrong. Because until you know what's wrong, there's no thought about a solution. Well, Romans 1, 2, and the beginning of 3 is our diagnosis, an essential part of the process, and it's bad news. But the bad news makes the good news good. Because chapter 3 has a turning point. Because not only is God angry, we also find out that God is righteous, and he found a righteous way to deal with our problem. And it's as simple as this. He gives righteousness away to people who don't deserve it. Let's see how Romans explains that. There's a complete change of tone. I'm going to read Romans 3, 21 through 24. This is the passage we read at the start. Now, but now, but now, I always love those conjunctions. It's changing now. After Paul says, it's dark, it's, it's horrible, 
we're all sinners, we all deserve God's wrath, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This passage and this idea is what changed the life of Martin Luther. I mentioned him earlier. He's a German monk, Catholic Church, keenly aware of how far he fell short of God's perfection. He wrote at one point he hated God's righteousness. He saw it as this insurmountable mountain that was about to fall on his head because he didn't measure up and he knew he didn't measure up and he kept trying to measure up trying to be good enough for a righteous God to accept him. And he knew he was failing every time. And then one day, reading the book of Romans, the same book we have in our hands right now, reading that book, he came to understand, no, that's not what this verse means by righteousness. It's not the standard against which God will compare us. Righteousness is a gift. It's a present of good standing with God given to people who didn't earn it given to people whose problem was they stand guilty before God, and God found a way through Jesus to declare guilty people innocent. We'll talk about that in just a minute. And it's not something you work hard for and, and hope to deserve. It's something that is given as a gift. They are justified by his grace as a gift. And understand, justified means to be declared innocent by a, a governing authority, by a judge. You're innocent. Not just forgiven, that's already amazing, isn't it? I mean, I can be forgiven for all the stuff I've messed up on? That, that mess we've made of the, of the world, God will forgive me for that? Yes. But he goes further. <laughs> he declares guilty people innocent. How does that work? He does it because of what Jesus did on the cross. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Oh, this is the minute. <laughs> first, first, smooth, smooth transition there. That was seamless, Mike. <laughs> in, verse, in verse 25, he talks about the word propitiation. It's, it's one of the big 25-cent theological terms you'll read as, in the epistles. It simply means an atoning sacrifice, a, a sacrifice that, that pays the penalty of the person who deserves that death. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. We already know that. And with this one verse, all the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament that seem brutal to us and barbaric... Oh, they, they make sense. Because every, every one of those was pointing ahead to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the earth. God was giving his people a hint, a foretaste. You know how that Passover lamb died so the angel of death would, would pass over your house and not kill your firstborn? Well, yeah, that's what Jesus is going to do. And so we have this, this atoning sacrifice in verse 25 that, that made it just and proper for God to declare innocent, because you can't judge two different people for the same offense. If Jesus paid that price, the ones who committed the sin don't need to anymore. And that's the message here, and why it goes on to say in verse uh, 27, no, verse 26, sorry, of chapter 3, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. I love that phrase. 
God is just. It's, it's, it's normal that he do this. And he's the justifier. He declares innocent people who earned it. People who are good enough for him? No. He justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now at this point, it's like he anticipates the idea that his Jewish readers are saying, Paul, Paul what is this new teaching? Where did you get this? Is this your own idea? Is this a, a fabrication of your own logic? And in chapter 4, he says, no, folks, it's always been like this. This is not a new teaching. He says, even Abraham, the father of our nation, lived this way. It's nothing new. It's as old as Abraham. Verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4 say this. What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the woman who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. He's earned it. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Faith counts as righteous acts, righteous behavior. What an incredible deal. How awful to pass up a deal like that. So we see, we start with God was angry. Then we saw he was righteous. Now we see that he's consistent. He's been doing this all along since Abraham. And now we turn to the fact that he's loving, which is a focus of chapter 5. Chapter 5 begins the celebration, begins the party. After the dark description of our problem and then going to God's solution, 5 and 6 and especially 8, we'll get to that in a minute, throw a party. If this is true, <laughs> look what we can celebrate. Look what we can laugh about. Look what we can revel in. And chapter 5 starts that, verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, don't let that go by, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The party begins <laughs> in chapter 5, and it's exciting, and, and, and he starts to revel in, in the joy that comes from having this burden taken off your shoulders. The joy that Martin Luther felt when he realized, I don't have to earn my way to his good favor. And he launched the Protestant Reformation out of that realization. The joy that comes, the lightness, the spiritual lightness that comes, we catch flavors of in, in this chapter. But maybe some of us are thinking what Paul assumed his readers were thinking. Wait a minute, doesn't obedience matter? Shouldn't we be doing things for God? Isn't that what the commandments are all about? You know, the Ten Commandments are there, right? Don't we have to obey stuff? And in chapter 6, he says, yeah, yeah, the obedience matters. Let's look at 12 through 14 of chapter 6. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who've been brought from death to life, and your members as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under law but under grace. Yes, there are things to obey, and this is a foretaste of the guidelines, the commands I mentioned earlier. In chapter 12, we're going to say, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Chapter 13, obey governing authorities, pay your taxes. What? Yes, pay your taxes. 
Be gentle with Christians who don't think like you do. Chapter 14. The commands are there, but notice where they fit. And this, if you walk away with one idea today, notice where obedience fits in the salvation process. By the time we get to Romans 6, the first time there's a command to obey, we're already forgiven by the God of the universe. We're already declared innocent and righteous by God because of our faith in Jesus. We already have peace with God because of our faith in Jesus. We already have eternal life because of our faith in Jesus. Then we're called to obey. Then we're called to holiness. What that teaches us is disobedience is a result, not the cause of our salvation. And boy, do we need to keep those two ideas separate. It's the result, not the cause. That's why salvation, justification, is a gift, not wages given to those who worked hard for them. That's one of the messages of the beginning of Romans. And that distinction is so important that I get a little nervous when I talk to Christ followers who don't seem to really know where they stand. It's been, I've had the opportunity to prepare people for baptism several times. And I'll often ask, how certain are you of where you stand with God? In other words, if you were to die tonight, do you know you're going to be welcomed into his heaven? And if there's a whiff of, man, I hope so. I, I've been doing my best. I hope I'm good enough. Oh, if there's a whiff of that, they haven't gotten it. Because in that case, where is their trust? It's not in Jesus, it's in them. I hope I can be good enough. I hope I can meet the standard God has set. If, our, if the people are saying, I'm doing my best, I hope I get there, I hope I'm good enough, spoiler alert, you're not good enough, and you won't get there. If it were up to you on your best effort, or me and my best effort, we'd all go to hell. And we would deserve every moment. Because Romans 1 through 3 tells us that. But we don't have to live in that way because the good news is it's not up to you. Jesus is good enough and he gives that status to those who trust him. Because on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he were us so he could treat us as if we were Jesus. And that's the best exchange in human history. Let me say that again because there were a lot of... Mm. On the cross, God treated Jesus as if he were us so he could treat us as if we were Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. And when I talk to people and I get a chance to, to walk people through this good news, I, I, I always tell a story at the end. And let me tell you the story now. And it, it might seem a little hokey, but I think it, it carries some meaning. In order to know what, how to respond to this good news and how not to respond, not to go off and do your best now, but how to benefit from this good news, I, I tell this story. Let's, let's pretend we're making a movie about life in the Middle Ages. And there's a war in our movie between rival kingdoms. The hero of our film is a knight on one side who realizes that he's, he's risking his life for a terrible king who hates his people, uh, who, who mistreats them and abuses them. And he realizes, I'm on the wrong side because the king on the other side, he seems good and noble and loving and his people love him and he loves them. And our knight decides, I've got to switch sides i got to change kingdoms. So he sends a message through enemy lines and requests an audience with the king he's fighting against. And he gets a, a letter back saying, meet us at a clearing in the forest tomorrow at noon. 
So the next day, our knight mounts up, and he's clopping through the forest, and he doesn't know what to expect, right? This is war. And he knows, by the laws of that kingdom, he's a rebel, he's a criminal, he, he deserves a death sentence. And if this is an ambush, he couldn't complain. That's how these things work. But he's hoping to find mercy. And sure enough, he gets to the clearing, and there's a, a throne set up in the middle of the meadow, and there's a path to the throne, and knights lining the path. Our hero dismounts and walks to, along the path, finds himself face to face with the king he'd come to do business with. And we decide as directors, we don't want a word to be spoken in this scene. Everything communicated non-verbally. What would be the first thing we would direct our knight to do when he came to the foot of the throne to express non-verbally what his intentions are? He would take a knee. He would bow. And in that gesture, without saying anything out loud, he's saying a lot. He's saying, I've been wrong. I've changed my mind. I resisted you, now I submit to you. I hated you, now I appreciate, maybe even love you. I thought I was better without you, now I know I need you. I've changed my mind about me and about you and my relationship to you. I now submit to you. By the way, friends, the word repent means to change your mind. So this knight has repented. But we want our hero to do more than just say, I was wrong, you were right. We want him to offer himself to the service of this king, to become a productive member of his kingdom. Without saying a word, what might a knight do to communicate that? Take a sword, which is him. It's my blood, my sweat, my tears. This is me. He hands it to the king. And when the king accepts it and taps him on both shoulders, that guy has changed kingdoms now. And a transaction has taken place, hasn't it? He's come into the meadow a criminal worthy of death by the laws of the kingdom, but because he bowed and because he trusted and said, I will now follow you as my king, he received mercy and grace and forgiveness. Friends, if I love that story, it's because Romans tells us every human being ever born needs a clearing in the forest moment with Jesus. We don't need to try harder. We don't need to try to measure up because we can't. We need a clearing in the forest moment where we bow before Jesus, we, we change our mind about him and about us, we answer his call when he says, follow me, we say, yes, I'm going to follow you. And in that moment, not later when we get better, not later when we're holier, not later when we conquer our bad habits, in that moment, we become not just citizens of the kingdom, the story doesn't go far enough, we become children of the king. And we get all the benefits of Romans chapter 8. Can I give you homework to, to study? Read Romans 8 when you get home. We, it says we have the Holy Spirit. We're adopted. Jesus shares his inheritance with us. Our sufferings have a purpose. All things work together for good. The Spirit prays for us. Are you kidding me? God is for us. Who can be against us? And no one can separate me from his love. Romans 8 is the party. And if you read that and realize, I can say that too then chances are you've understood the gospel. But if you read that and say, I wish I could be confident of that, then there's a good chance you've been depending on you and not him. Can I urge us to not diminish the gospel to us being good enough? To not pollute it with the idea that maybe I'll be, I'll be okay, maybe I'll measure up. Can we put ourselves in the place where we are so grateful 
to a God who died for the ungodly, who justifies sinners, who, who forgives people who deserve his wrath, can we so revel in that that our praise becomes alive and we get a spring in our step? And yes, we want to obey that kind of God. Who wouldn't? So we go on to learn how to live the holy lives that the, the commands talk about. But it's not so that we can receive salvation. It's because we already have it. And if we can make that distinction, we've understood the main message of Romans. I made that step, took that step when I was 11 years old. And I didn't know anything I talked about today. <laughs> okay? I, was, I was a kid. I read a booklet. I thought, oh, I want that. You don't have to have all the details. You don't even have to have anyone else with you to have that clearing in the forest moment. I did it by myself. But if you want someone with you, if you want someone to walk you through that moment, I'd be glad to help John, Anthony, elders here in the church, a good Christian friend that you trust. Invite somebody to sit with you as you take that step, as you pray those prayers, as you express that trust. And you'll know. And you can celebrate the way Romans 8 does. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this amazing news. Thank you for the joy we have as we contemplate it. Lord, forgive us for polluting it and diminishing it and making it about us. Help us to revel in the fact that it's all about you. You are that kind of God, and we celebrate you, and we're so glad to be your children. For those who aren't sure yet, Lord, would you help them to become sure because they have a clearing in the forest moment with you. Pray this in Christ's name.